Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Dunn Street trains engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building. And we help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that can unite a constituency and move them to act together. And if you want to create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. When you need support with a legal issue, it can feel pretty daunting. And that's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has helped guide clients with their legal needs. They're here to help you when you need them the most, from workplace to medical injuries, class actions, occupational diseases and wills and estates planning. As Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, they've got the local knowledge and the national network and experience that you can count on. So to find out more, just visit morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community both online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, just go to their website, swiftfoxcrm.com, to win your next campaign. Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left an organising podcast, which is out every Friday, that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week's episode, we're joined uh, by uh, Dr. Andrea Carson from La Trobe University, who's um, a senior lecturer um, in their uh, communications uh, department, and John Armitage from Kudos Research, who's a long-term, long-time researcher, political campaigns, the Labor Party, but he does even more work beyond that. He works for you know folks, friends and comrades in the movement, and even beyond that. So. Uh, They're on the show today really to talk about kind of communications, media, where their place is and the way that we communicate to an audience. But then we're going to dive into what we're seeing from the the next big battlefront in terms of political campaigning, and that is the referendum later in this year. So looking forward to that conversation today. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And when you're done listening to the show, give us five stars on the app that you use. Uh, and for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and LinkedIn. All right, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday. No, it's a Thursday. No, wait. What day is it today? What day is Thursday. it? <laughs> is it Thursday? Yeah. It is Thursday. Man, this has been a weird week. We're taping this one on a Thursday morning on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And uh, uh, today's, today's guest, the quick backstory, um, in February, late February this year, uh, Dunn Street had its annual birthday party to celebrate one more, 12 more months of um, survival uh, in this um, crazy world that we uh, call community organising. Um, and what, normally what we do is we just invite a bunch of uh, friends and colleagues from, I guess, the broader labour movement to come and celebrate this uh, moment with us at some sort of dingy bar in the city. Um, and amongst this elite group of, of uh, you know, friends and progressives and academics and all sorts of different people, uh, tucked away in the corner are my two guests today and they spent the whole time tucked away in the corner just over a couple of glasses of wine 
gas bagging to each other. And at the end of the night, I said, what the hell were you two talking about? Because you didn't do any mingling. And they said, oh, we've been talking about this and this and this. And I said, right, well, this is a great idea for a podcast. And so here we are today. So you're going to have to talk about everything that we you two talked about over the night because it looked like an intriguing conversation. <laughs> and the two people I'm talking about is uh, first time on the podcast ever, and I cannot believe it's taken this long to get this man on this show, given the amount of campaigns he and I work together. John Armitage, Director of Kudos Research Group, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thanks very much, Stephen. I'm glad to be here at last. And love the digs you've set up. Really gone highbrow for today's uh, audio <laughs> visual show. Wonderful. That's a is that a is that an original curtain you've got there or? Yes, it is. It's, it's look. Um, uh, what I try to do when I do this, this is how I do my Zoom focus group. So I want people to feel comfortable and relaxed. So this is my comfortable and relaxed setting, or at least that's the spin I'm putting on the fact that I haven't got around to organising my office to look pretty yet. Very good. Or as opposed to relaxed and comfortable about how John Howard wanted us to feel in the uh, in the 1990s. And joining mm-hmm. for probably the third, fourth, fifth, I don't know how many times, and I love every time she comes on the show, she's the Professor for Political Communication at my alma mater, La Trobe University, Dr. Andrea Carson. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Thanks, Stephen. And great to be on with John too. Absolutely. And you've really gone lowbrow with your background, I see there. I'm doing uh, Ode to John Olson there in the back. That's a print um, he passed a couple of months ago. And, of course, you know, the book's at hand um, as we academics like to have. Uh, and I was being very sarcastic because, God damn it, I would get you on NBC any day of the week with that background. That is NBC <laughs> quality background to, you know, call in someone. So I'm very proud of you made the effort today for today's show and for our very dedicated listeners. Okay, so the things that you were talking about uh, at the Dunn Street birthday drinks, we're not going to cover all of the things, but we're going to cover two particular areas, or maybe three. One is, broadly speaking, the media um, and how they relate to uh, political coverage, uh, giving information, shaping conversations and debate. Um, And I want to ask in a moment about your interests, where your interests come from or come to this particular kind of conversation. But I also want to talk about the voice. Uh, it is the next big election in this country. We've, it seems like in the last 12 months, we've had a lot of elections. We've had, uh, you know, the federal one, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, and now the big, and this is huge because this is something that doesn't happen every every 12 months, right? Referendums are rare. The last one was 1999. So this is a unique opportunity just to run a campaign that's different but similar. So I want to talk about that as well, and I want to lean in both your experiences uh, uh, to this conversation but before we do that, and if we can turn to talk about the media to begin with, uh, starting with you, Andrew, what are your interests? I mean, I know we've had you on the show plenty of times before, but for people who haven't heard you before, what are your interests in terms of wanting to talk about the media in this conversation? Well, I guess you mentioned how John and I were at furious conversation at the celebration of Dunn Street, and part of that is because we were talking campaigns and elections, which is where my passion lies, understanding how the media reports that, the types of stories that get traction. But in this really interesting digital age, I guess um, the falling uh, cultural capital of the traditional press and the rise of social media and where people get their information from, which the Australian Electoral 
um, survey each election that comes out of um, ANU charts where people are getting their political information from. And 2019 was the first time they saw that crossover that no longer was traditional media, television, radio and newspapers collectively dominant. And usually it's television where people are getting their political news. It was the internet. Now, some of that's a little bit misleading because um, Australians are getting news from still the traditional sites from their online iterations but it means that it's coming straight into literally their wallets or their back pockets through their mobile phone very easy to get information quickly and the way that we digest news changes and that's got really big implications for political campaigns and the way that um, politicians and their teams work out how they're going to map out messages. But the other two things I'd put in there is that, of course, we're in an era of finding it difficult to know what's true and what's not true and the amount of mis and disinformation that's washing around and how easy it is to put out um, information that's false and what that does to the informed vote. And the other aspect, I guess, which won't be relevant to the referendum, well, I don't think so anyway, is early voting and the way that's really truncated political campaigns, um, which at the federal level are mandated for a minimum of 33 days. But if you open up early voting two weeks before that, then for those that aren't all that politically engaged, you've probably only got two weeks of really concentrated messaging to try and as a political candidate or party to get your message out. So it's these changing dynamics that captivates my interest in the different types of media that people are consuming. Fantastic. John Armitage, to you, what interests bring you to this conversation? As you know, Stephen, my day job is to do research and listen to ordinary people and hear the way that they're interacting with not every job, but a lot of jobs are about we test a message, we take a message out to people in focus groups, sometimes surveys as well, and you say, how are they reacting to that? What bits are they tuning into and what bits are they not? And as the project goes along, we try and tighten up that message so that we can give back to our client this quite tight message that we know is speaking to people. It hasn't got these annoying little bugs in it where you've sort of misspoken in some way that misrepresents something, but also that you've essentially it's about connecting with their values, right? Not, not pushing too far. And so what I tend to do is I, I, when I listen to, you know, be it, and I, I reckon even years ago, I'd say politicians on both sides and, uh, and media commentators, you think we're all a bit hit and miss, you know, we're all doing our best and we're a bit hit and miss. But I would see this sort of, you go, yeah, that's good. Oh, they've missed the mark there. Because you just got an ear for it. Or you might have even had the good fortune of doing quite a lot of research on a subject matter. And I think it's been fascinating me about Murdoch Media in particular. Um, uh, but I think the fragmentation of media more broadly is that some people uh, almost... I don't know if it's accidental or deliberate. Sometimes I think it is deliberate. They're not hitting the middle and they're not even trying to be hitting the middle. They're hitting a particular market. And so I've been fascinated about the, in a sense, the, the Murdoch media, which I see is actually pursuing a segment of the population that isn't the centre. Um, uh, and then watching the, the Liberal Party, uh, fair enough, the One Nation and National Party factions of the Conservative movement, Good on them. That you know, they're lockstep with a lot of the sky after dark sort of stuff. But what's the Liberal Party going into that space for? I've been sort of fascinated by that. Um, I'll just give you another little bit of uh, information I got just off someone who was working on the last New South Wales campaign. Um, uh, they were doing survey work on have you seen the Labor and the Liberal Party's ads on ads, and they'd show people the ad and you know have you seen it. 
70% of people had seen neither. I can tell you on the first big campaign I worked on for Braxy in 99 in Victoria, we could have an opinion I was concerned about in a poll on Saturday. We would bomb an ad out and drop a million bucks on an ad Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday in focus groups, I've got people having a different perspective on that issue. Today, you can drop your millions of bucks and I don't see that change happening. I actually think, you know, stick with your business, Stephen. I think, you know, knocking on doors, talking to people is going to be proportionately a bigger and bigger influence. And I, I think there's some good and bad things about that. But that, anyway, that's what fascinates me is this, I suppose, sort of different influence and probably shrinking, as you were saying, Andrea, uh, influence of media and media views on, uh, you know, public opinion in particular about political issues. Can I jump in there for a sec? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew, go um, for it. Yeah, so something that resonates there with me of what John just said is that you can uh, people aren't seeing the ads and I presume you're talking about television ads there because increasingly we're seeing that money translate over to ad spend on Facebook, which is still of all the social media sites that Australians consume that's still the most popular, although it's getting a real challenge from TikTok and also um, the co-owned Instagram, where the younger people tend to go. Um, And you can spend minimal amounts of money really on those sites and be quite effective because you can be so targeted. And, John, when you were talking about the way that you hone messages, one of the things Trump did in 2016 with Cambridge Analytica was that A-B testing, just putting out literally millions of messages targeted on social media, changing headlines, changing pictures, changing captions, and just seeing which one got the greatest engagement and just doing that real-time testing and then taking that message and doing it to even larger groups. So I think all the techniques are the same. It's just where this space is happening and the ways um, at the use of social media to do that at lower cost has transformed some of the political campaigning. It is an interesting point, though, and you're right, Andrea, But and I can't speak to the 2022 election cycle and what the ad spend was on mainstream network television, but I can speak to the 2018 Victorian cycle, and it still was, I won't quote the figure, but it was still a shitload of money. Like a, it was, yeah, it was I think more money than it was going on to digital. And I was astounded given that I'm st- always scraping for more money to, you know, hire more field organisers and put into the field program where I, I have evidence that shows how many votes it shifts from a conversation, yet we are still dropping millions of dollars on TV advertising. Now that's I, I think it's kind of like people can't let go of the rope. You know, it's like we've always done this and if we stop doing this, we're going to lose. Whereas to your point, but yeah. Stephen, you would know effective. this too. With your work in the US, Australia's probably, I think, at least two, one or two election cycles behind the trends of the US and I'd probably say more like two. So if that was occurring in 2016 in the US, let's watch the next election cycle and just this movement over to the digital ad spend. I mean, we did see um, ALP in particular at the federal level spending a lot on Facebook um, millions of dollars, probably not the same level as legacy media, but I think we're in that transition point where it will swap over. Yeah, and I think I, I, I agree. Like, And I should also, also point out, yes, a lot of money has been spent on digital advertising as well, um, millions of dollars. Um, and there may be, we may see in the next two or three cycles that flip where 
there's less money going to TV advertising and more onto Facebook, YouTube, that kind of stuff. And I hope that is. Well, there's even another layer there, though, I think, is that, I mean, is, an advertiser recently said to me that advertising is like the poor tax, right? Because if I'm on my phone um, and people might play games on their phone or whatever, and you can watch an ad to get a reward or you can, but you don't have to watch that ad. I mean, if I'm, I, I, so many ads come onto my phone and the sound's down. And I just don't look at them while they're on. Um, if uh, if I'm sitting on the couch and thinking, what am I going to watch tonight? I am not going to pay. To, to, I'm, I'm looking at the myriad. Of, I spend much too much money on all the different streaming services. Um, so I don't know how you get an audio visual ad at me at all. Um, and then in the car, you can't even get me. Because, or two reasons. One is I'm, I'm working at home now because I can, because we figured out we can do that more. And the other one is I'm listening to the ABC anyway. So, I mean, you're still going to get, people on radio but I, I suspect it's going to be there's going to be seen in 50 years time we'll look back at this odd era when people could buy political influence without arms and legs political parties are going to need more members uh more organizers and more volunteers talking to people the way that it would have been done in the sort of pre-electronic media era we're going to go back to 2029 might eventually end up more like 1929 in terms of how you have to run a campaign Andrea, I want to pick up on some of the points that you made in your opening remarks uh, and then see if we can sort of intersect that with some of the th- reflections that John had, and that is about um, uh, what is true and what is not true uh, in political campaigning. Um, and uh, I think you and I spoke about it a bit when you were last on the show, um, but to see the point that John was making before, which is uh, I think John said that he thinks that, like, say, the media, the Murdoch press are intentionally skewing their coverage to a select group. And I am starting to come around to that theory as well. I think that they've sort of said, we're not going to be a mainstream centrist paper anymore. For, I'm using the Herald Sun as an example here. In fact, we're actually going to tailor it to this cracker right wing nut job cohort of a very small section of society that probably only makes up about 20%. And that's our audience. And in terms of our business model, that's what it's going to operate around. And also the stuff we're going to print isn't really going to be truthful or it's not, you know, it's going to be grey, uh, but it's going to be tailored to that audience and that's kind of where we're going to live now, which is really weird when you think about it because, you know, 20 years ago, whilst it was still a Tory rag, it was a Tory rag for, for the state of Victoria. Do you know what I mean? Like it was a broadsheet in a sense. It was broad to try and talk to everyone. Do you see that, Andrea, do you see that happening? Is that something that you're... Is that coming up in your research that this is where media consumption is heading? It's just heading into these sort of corners. We are becoming more polarised in our coverage. Um, Again, nowhere near to the extent of the US. And um, I did a study, a two-year study, looking at COVID coverage, for example, and trusting media outlets and media use. And what we found was that in the US, if you're a Democrat, you're reading one of five Um, outlets or listening to them, watching them. Um, If you're a Republican, you're on looking at these outlets and there's hardly any cross-pollination. It's like two humps of a camel um, if you graph it up. If you're looking at Australia, we still have a relatively mixed media diet. So in uh, a week, people might be getting information from Facebook, maybe something from their um, news media stable, something from News Corp. 
bit of the ABC. So we're seeing a bit more cross-pollination, which I think is good. It means we've got a bit more pluralism going on and the opportunity to hear different perspectives. But as the pandemic went on and we saw the consensual public sphere become more decentral and we saw the states pulling apart and um, more um, dissenting voices about the public policy direction, we also saw some of that polarising pattern that you see in the US going on with media consumption. Not saying it's as dire as that, but we have the potential for it. And as you just um, spoke to, Stephen, you think the Herald Sun's pulling off in a more right-wing direction. Some would say the Guardian's taken the left-wing um, position in its coverage, and so we're starting to see that agenda setting that um, comes from a political perspective. But the other thing I'd throw into the mix about John's observation, which I think is interesting here, um, is that if you look at the demographics of voters, we're getting younger cohorts coming in. They don't read newspapers. They get their information from social media and it comes into their feeds. They don't actively look for it. It's um, there with their Instagram mix or their um, TikTok, whatever they're consuming. So the Herald Sun and their editors are having a problem reaching those um, that audience. The other thing is their content's locked behind a hard paywall. And what that means is that unlike some paywalls where you get 20 or 30 articles for free a month just to sample it to keep the eyeballs washing through and to keep the traffic up, they block you out completely. So unless you're a young person who's going to subscribe to the Herald Sun, you're probably not going to get a lot of that content. Now, some of it might drift onto Facebook as a strategic choice to try and pick up that audience. Um, but the mainstay of their readers, I would suggest, are older and they're probably speaking to the conservative values that a lot of those readers already hold. So you're getting a bit of an echo chamber effect going on with that readership. And if you look at Daniel Andrews, who I think is a really interesting case study here because politicians used to be so fearful of News Corp because of its agenda-setting power um, and its ability to strike fear that if you do something that's going to be contrary to the economic interests, Murdoch or the political interests, that you're going to be punished. And we saw that with headlines um, with um, Bill Shorten in 2016 with Bill Nokio and, you know, and Kevin Rudd, some pretty scathing, you know, will this guy ever shut up? You might remember on the front page spread right across the country at, at the Courier Mail and Daily Telegraph and so forth. Daniel Andrews has kind of rebuffed all that and said, I don't care what they write about me and I'm not going to talk to those journalists anymore. And what happened at the last election? He actually increased his majority. And that was against some coverage, dire coverage that was predicting that um, it was going to be minority government or it's going to be on a, you know, a cliffhanger. It wasn't any of the sort, which I think also speaks to how out of touch some of that coverage is because it is concentrating on this particular audience that's older and has an ace more conservative. Before I go to John on that one, and some glaring things in that coverage that I thought were, were remarkable. The first one was, uh, and to be honest, I will lump Fairfax in with this as well. It's not just News Corp. 
Well, let's call them nine because it is quite a different entity from Fairfax when I worked at The Age, which really had um, a, a very different social justice agenda, I think, to what it has now. And keeping in mind that its chair is Peter Costello, who was the former treasurer uh, of the federal government, so of the conservative government. So I think nine has shifted. It's much more commercial than what we saw with the Fairfax, and it has um, probably a different agenda running in some of its news stories. <laughs> That's not- I'll underline that agenda. Um, the uh, like in the in the final days of the the twenty eighteen sorry twenty twenty two state election, they literally were running articles where people within the Labor Party who had an agenda, an agenda against Daniel Andrews were backgrounding against him in that in the event if he loses, if he loses, that his premiership will be called into question and people are moving against him and he's going to get rolled. Like that was getting front page coverage. Like, I mean, how fucking mad is that? And how far from reality is that when the guy and the government increased its majority by an additional seat? The second one, and this is the question I want to ask you, John, is did it, how much did, how much, what, what level of did this burn your piss to see Channel 9 run a front page package about a poll, a poll? being done in the seat of Mulgrave, which was a sample of about 30 crackers uh, on that the independent was going to beat Daniel Andrews in the seat of Mulgrave. And that was, you know, that was, that was trumped up as research that ran on a major news bulletin. And I sat there watching it that night going, this is insane. Like literally this is, you could get someone's really uh, enthusiastic 10 year old, to stand out the front of the polling centre and ask people who you're going to vote for with crayons and mark it down and then give that to the journalists and say, here, run that, because that's basically what just happened. And as a professional researcher, I don't know how you felt about that, but as a campaigner, I was like, we're beyond the pale on this one now. This is, this is we're, we're done. Like, just pack it up. Journalists, just stop. Just stop doing it. Go home. Just, just pack the whole show up because this is ridiculous. Uh, well, for me, um, uh, I'm really torn about this stuff in some ways because, um, you know, there's a rare thing, or it used to be rare, this rare thing you can get in politics is this very beautiful gift, and they don't come along that often, but you do get them sometimes, and that is a spectacularly deluded opponent. And you should never waste such a rare gift. It doesn't happen very often, although it does seem to be recently common these days in the, um, I'm sort of thinking uh, Victoria, um, Western Australia, South Australia, anyway, perhaps even nationally. Um, so we're getting a bit of it. And so that's sort of good. So what I, I actually quite like to hear stuff that is completely away from the where I know the centre to be. It makes me happy. So uh, I was going into that last uh, state election based on all the stuff I'd seen and done, thinking I just can't, I didn't know we are going to do quite as well as we did, but I didn't for a minute think that Daniel Andrews wasn't going to be returned. There just was, I mean, I'm talking to ordinary people about sometimes things as ordinary as recycling. Now, if I'm doing that in the midst of an unpopular government, state or federal, people just start slagging off at them. It's like the thing you do. I'm not hearing any of that. And uh, so I, I was very confident that Daniel was fine. And the idea he was going to lose his seat was just sort of like this um, this little silly fantasy of the right. And I like to see our opponents having a silly fantasy. Um, I mean, I think there's a really interesting thing about the role of the right-wing media here, right? I reckon as little as a few years ago, I would have regarded 
liberal one nation national Murdoch media as the four horsemen of the conservative apocalypse, sort of <laughs> all with the same agenda, right? They're all pushing towards, you know, try and get this sort of far right utopia to, um, uh, to come along. I've shifted my view about that. I think the other three are effectively the, the parties are a, a factions of a, of a single movement. Um, but, you know, Murdoch Media is, is specifically motivated by, and I, I'm actually looking at what they're putting out there, and I'm thinking, why would you say that? And, and I, 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 we might talk about this later on The Voice. I have specifically gone to far north Queensland and specifically recruited rednecks and specifically asked them. So we get that sort of work sometimes, right, where you talk to that that small proportion of people that is the far right. Look, you know, they're not tiny. They're entitled to their view. They've got a political view. That's not mine, but, you know, they've, they're, they're, they exist and they have a, a view and it's interesting to talk to them sometimes. <laughs> Challenging, uh, but, but interesting. And I'm looking at a lot of the stuff that they're saying in Victoria and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I reckon in this state there's maybe 5 or 7% of people that are lapping that up. So why do you pitch that out? Well, you know, it is basically a financial model. Like if you are a racist, homophobic, uh, perhaps some sort of Christian fundamentalist freaking out about lesbians and atheists and trans people all over the place, uh, you know, this is a pretty unpleasant world for you. And if, if you... If you are pining for a return of the 1950s white male privilege, well, it can all be yours. Just subscribe to Foxtel and $39.99 a month and tune into Sky After Dark every day and here it is for you. So suddenly then I'm looking at a lot of this far right stuff coming into formerly mainstream media and going, uh, now I see the motivation. And I think that, I'm, I realise I'm drifting a bit from the question, but I see the fascinating thing that's happened here I actually don't think this is irrational for the One Nation gets about 5%, National Party gets about 5%. For them, that sort of that, that sort of sky after dark, Herald Sun, at least in its political coverage and Australian newspaper, that these sort of weird organisations are pitching to those respective fives. Those two parties should merge, by the way, and be a single proposition. But um, uh, that makes sense. But why would the Liberal Party... I mean, if I was you know, a smart Liberal Party, would not let a single member of their party be going on to Sky After Dark. That is, they are just looking like nutbags talking to those nutbags. They've got a pitch to this normal centrist place. So, I mean, I suppose when I am observing that stuff, and it sounds funny to say, if I'm a bit bored and want a bit of a giggle, I'll tune into Sky After Dark. Right? I, it makes me laugh, and it warms my heart to think that a whole lot of libs are watching this, and t and they are. They are literally taking their cues from this insanity that is just, you know, you know it, it, it's just trashing their brand. I mean, I, I don't necessarily predict the demise of the Liberal Party. I think parties can be quite resilient. But, you know, this whole Teal thing that's happened, this is a block to them being in government, that their, their unwillingness to reflect the values of, in fact, three quarters of conservative voters, upper middle class white people in the inner city, middle and inner rings of cities who are not racist, not homophobic, not climate deniers. And you know what? We're the highest level of um, uh, the most vaccinated people. So the least likely to buy into those conspiracies. And yet you've got this whole branch of media that says it represents the right, that is talking about all that weird nutbag stuff that is just really one nation national party land. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks 
uh, that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Park in Sky After Dark for one moment, and I am with you wholeheartedly. If you want to giggle, you must watch it. And sometimes when I go home to country Victoria, I will stick it on just for a bit of a laugh. Um, but broadly speaking, what should be the, the, the centrist element of mainstream media? Uh, and, you know, Andrew, I want to ask you this question because you're a former producer. When do you make – what do you prioritise in terms of what you want to be – on the news, whether it be on radio or TV or print, right? Because I, I think that if I was the journalist and I came to you and said, oh, I've got this package I want to do, there's been a poll in Mulgrave done by a child, we should run it that night, I would assume that you'd go, get out of my office. Um, you're not going to get a Walkley with that, right? Um, <laughs> but what I found, even over COVID, was there was stuff that was making it into the news and I'm going, that's not newsworthy. Or that only makes up like that opinion would make up 0.00001% of the population. The fact that the all those right-wing nutjobs are still marching up and down Burke Street on a Saturday afternoon and there's only about 25 of them and they get a whole police escort, I don't understand why that's still happening, right? I would, If I was the police, I'd say there's not enough of you, do it in your backyard, right? But we're, I know we're a democracy and all that, but I mean some of this stuff just shouldn't be on the news. Um, the health stun are still running the friggin' bike accident with Daniel Andrews' wife. Like, stop. Uh, Essentially, Stephen, you're asking me a question that we call media logic. What is the logic that determines the way that um, news stories are decided, the news agenda of the day? And that varies. Media logic, I mean, in academia, we look at things like time pressure, deadlines, seniority of journalists, the ethos of the paper, um, the uh, ability to be able to attract leaks, um, how long the journalist has been working in around for, all those sorts of things go to how they determine what story they're going to run with. But and you asked me, you know, personally, um, I worked at The Age for a number of years and then I went and produced radio on the ABC. So the media logic is going to be different for different organisations, but broadly it takes into account, you know, time pressures and all those sorts of things and seniority. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that news by definition is something that's new and what is extraordinary. And extraordinary wins over the ordinary mm-hmm. every time. So if it's something that's going to excite the readers, then um, it's probably going to excite the editors. And the other, perhaps, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that the most extraordinary news is fake news. So hey, that's going to beat... Um, the, whatever's going on during the day at any given point. Um, But also fear, and we can thank Trump um, for this, we know that fear is a greater shock and awe tactic than probably hope and the positive news stories. Obama tried to go down the hope route with, yes, we can. Um, Trump was build the wall and lock them out. Um, And fear can, and John would know this from his work and yours too, Stephen, that um, fear can be a great motivator, which is why we get so much negative coverage. 
doesn't mean the audience necessarily likes it, but there's something quite primal about how we're tuned into that. Maybe it's a self-protection. We want to know how to protect the bad things from happening to us. So we read on and we look on and, and see. And so they're the sorts of things that motivate media coverage. Um, and the idea that a standing premier is going to be ousted by some young gun, um, delusional young gun in Mulgrave, you know, that's quite a shock and awe story. So it's going to attract some attention. But what you would hope is that overriding all that is a charter and um, some journalistic ethics that will go to what the core function is of news, and that is to inform the readers, not to serve the people you're writing about. Um, And if you're serving your audience, you're probably doing a good job. And by doing that, you know, you should be hitting five key tenets, which is to inform the audience, um, to provide information so they can make independent choice, Uh, there's an educative function. There's also a function to allow for advocates to be able to articulate their viewpoints. Uh, And these are the sorts of things that we teach in journalism courses. But um, the media, I guess with the polarisation that we're seeing, a lot of those core values are changing and the idea of this ideal public sphere and the media's role in that is seriously under question. Uh, John, do you want to add anything to that? Because I want to switch to the voice in a moment, but I just want to get any sort of reflections, final reflections on that. Oh, yeah, I think um, Andrew has sort of his head much better around the sort of no, no, notion of sort of media and how it works in journalism. I just, one thing I suppose I'd just sort of reflect upon here for us as campaigners um, and your listeners who are campaigners, Stephen, is that all of this just reinforces to me something we've already known as campaigners, but it is just so much more imperative now. You've got to have a single-minded proposition. When you've got this great array of stuff that's being pumped into people's heads from a whole lot of different places, confusing or complex messages or diffuse messages are going to be so much harder to get through. You know, if you're a campaigner, you've got to have one idea. That's not to say that it's one turn of phrase. I don't mean that at all. And it doesn't also mean that there might not be a lot of different things underneath it, which you would say. Um, But there's one central proposition that is all the little things you say underneath should still reinforce that. And I think the campaigns that have a clarity in their own heads about that single-minded proposition. And, for example, I test slogans. You know what people say about slogans? Glib, stupid. Like, they're all glib and stupid. I really like them. Why do I like them? Because they are the internal brief to us when we're on the campaign. This is to remind everybody what we're saying all the time. So there's always one single proposition. Um, and if I've, if you've got a strong incumbent and you're doing well, think, um, uh, um, you know, Daniel Andrews or the um, uh, Mark McGowan in WA, then you can actually have a pretty positive proposition. But if you're in opposition uh, or if you're a dying government, you've got to have a negative proposition and it's got to be relentless. Or you just, you know, I mean, Morrison's proposition when he managed to beat Bill Shorten was exclusively negative. It was, could all fit under the single banner of the tax bill you can't afford, you know. So it, it was, and all of whatever he said was under there. So I, I suppose that, that for me is, the, I think, the big lesson of this changing media landscape to us as campaigners. Well, that might be a good way to then uh, switch over to the conversation about the, the voice uh, the referendum that uh, we're going to be having in the second half of the year. I don't think we've got a date yet, have we? It's sort of no, I it's think so. No. Sort of. I was hoping you'd tell me when you yeah, think I it's know. going to be. It's actually it surprises me that we don't have a date. There's another issue I've got with it. Um, 
Andrea, to you first of all, just open thoughts about the referendum. What do you want to talk about in this particular part of the the podcast? Uh, and we can, and I'll, then I'll go to you, John. Well, I'm fascinated to hear John's thoughts on um, that core idea of what's going to resonate for the Yes campaign of the Voice, because I think it's probably simpler and easier to have a core idea for the No campaign than it is for the Yes, and. Um, I'm hoping that those that are supporting the Yes campaign can come together under one united banner with that core message because I think the success of the referendum is going to depend on that. Um, I also think we're yet to see the campaign really activate yet. We're seeing lots of no. We're not seeing much of the yes yet. I'm hearing from insiders that the Yes campaign's all ready to go um, and it's when it kicks off, off, it'll kick off with a bang. Um, but it's mainly the no sort of ads and things that we're seeing trickle out at the moment. Um, but I'm keen to hear what John might be hearing on the ground about how Australians think about this. Mr Armitage? Yeah, I'd love to get into it. I did a really uh, big and interesting project about this. But just to get onto your question about the date, um, uh, in the olden days when we used to be able to pick dates for state elections before, and I think it's probably a good reform to have a fixed date, um, a, uh, Roland Lindell, uh, State Secretary, when I was just starting out in this game, uh, I said to him, what about the date? He said, there's a really simple rule. Actually, I think it was David White that said this to me in the same meeting, um, uh, the minister in the uh, Kane-Kerner uh, government. He said, uh, I said, when do you call an election? When you can win. And I reckon in the absence, probably from Albo's point of view, in the absence of seeing the clarity of the yes message, he is waiting to see that clarity. This would be my guess. I don't know if I've spoken to him or his people about it, but I reckon that they, they're waiting for clarity. And when they see clarity and they can see a strong proposition, then they'll go, right, we're ready to go. So I, th- I think they're probably waiting on the uh, yes case to coalesce around a single-minded proposition, which is uh, what I meant about one message. Um, uh, yeah, and if I could just sort of uh, drift away a sec from the, the fascinating discussion about what's going to happen and what might and how people might express things and why... Um, again, a lot of comrades will be listening, Stephen, and so I wanted to sort of impart what I'm seeing as a, a really beautiful single-minded proposition on the voice. If I've only got half a sentence, um, I, we all know that if we listen to the people that we make policies about, um, you know, be they disabled people, older people, country people, listening to them will get better policy uh, and, and law-making outcomes. That is the single idea at the core of this, right? When we listen we will make better laws and policies. And underpinning that, this is really important, so I'm very confident we're going to win this, right? Underpinning that is that Australians want better policy and outcomes for First Nations people. We, you know, without sort of, you know, having a collective sense of guilt about it, there is a widespread acceptance in contemporary Australia, a a section of the community aside, but, you know, 70% of people completely understand that as a society, as a country, as a community, we have let First Nations people down for 230 years, that they have not got, they've been getting the rough end of the stick and that's wrong. And so the notion that we must be trying to do something to improve that, I think is fairly universally accepted. And then, I mean, and the reason I say that, it, it, and it's come up in qual and quant, but there was this fella, you know, I wouldn't say he's overly sophisticated about these sort of things. He had a sort of, like most Australians, a generally positive view towards First Nations people. Didn't know much about this voice thing, by the way, most people don't, so he wasn't Robinson Crusoe in that. But he just really wasn't quite sure about it. 
uh, probably not quite sure about it on the basis of this simple equality idea. I'll reflect on equity in a second, but this equality idea that would you give one group of people a pathway for access to democracy that you wouldn't give others? And then we just read this simple message out to him that when you, exactly what I started off with, when you're making laws and policies about a group of people, if you listen to them, you do a better job. And it's just the penny just dropped and he goes, oh, yeah, of course. Fascinating thing about that message, didn't mention First Nations people at all. Actually used examples like young people, people with disabilities, people living in the country. So that, that's a beautiful idea that sits there. Another thing I'd say, which I think is, a, I don't think we need to talk about this much necessarily, but it's a really fascinating thing that's going on in people's heads. Australians believe in equality. Well, you know what? Uh, dictionary definition of equality, that's actually not quite correct. Australians believe in equity. So no Australian's going to say, oh, hang on a minute. That kid in a wheelchair next door got 2000 bucks from the government to get him a new wheelchair. Where's my kid's wheelchair? It'd be ridiculous, right? We all, we all believe in a level playing field. So the notion that Aboriginal people have been excluded from, even without even using those words, that somehow they've just been left out of our democracy, not don't seem to have been given a fair go. And then what's the big ask? Oh, like, and again, simple answer. I'd never forget this one woman who summed up so many other people's conversations in, um, in focus groups. Oh, well, I mean, they just want us to listen, do they? Oh, that seems pretty reasonable. So, you know, and then uh, I, I won't name who it was because it was at a sort of private party thing. I was talking to a leading light in the Liberal Party who said to me the other night and he said to me that, oh, it's going to go down because they want to include advice to the executive. I'm, I'm pretty sure most people don't know what the executive is. I know it's a corner function, cornerstone function of the way the Westminster system works. I don't know what the Westminster system either is. People have got an instinct for values and that's why values-based messages work. So... I think that they're off on this weird sort of, I know you're saying, Andrew, I'm sure you're right about more no messages being out there, but they're weird. Like, I think the Federal Liberal Party's position is we should have local voices and state voices, but not a national one. Where's the unifying um, proposition here, right? And just, I'm sorry to keep ranting on, but the other thing that's fascinating, that the right, you know, that single-minded proposition, I'll never get away from this, it's so important. And you've got to have a message that works for three groups, two in particular, but it should work for three should energise your base, should persuade the centre, and a little bit of antagonisation over your opponents is a good thing too. That generates the controversy you need for a healthy discussion, right? So those three things. So you've got to have one message that does that. 70% um, there about of Australians, probably more, think that Aboriginal people, uh, for various reasons, uh, have been disadvantaged or left out or left behind or something like that, right? Um, there's some problematic ways that we think about that, but that's essentially a pretty good proposition. So now bring in our belief in equity, right? Well, therefore, the notion that you might do something, right, to try and imbalance the inequity to create what Australians call equality, but what they mean by uh, that is equity, is perfectly reasonable in relation to First Nations people. It makes sense. Now, let's have a look at the somewhere between 15 and 25% of people who don't buy into that. What? That's ridiculous. I, when I'm, talk, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling some rednecks in, uh, older male rednecks in far north Queensland here. What? You want to give them something else? They already get all this stuff that the rest of us don't get. This is racist. They get all these helps and advantages. They get all these things. Yeah, it's inequitable, all right. Not that they've used that word. It's inequitable, all right. They're getting too much help. Right. So 
Barnaby Joyce and Pauline Hanson have got a pitch. They don't deserve any more. They're already getting too much. This is an elite group that gets pandered to by the wokes and they're getting too many freebies already and it's immoral and it's wrong. That's a core part of the no base. So Barnaby Joyce and Pauline Hanson are banging on about that. And then somehow Dutton's got a pitch to middle-class people in the suburbs who don't agree. So what's this crazy message he's got? Oh, well, you might agree that we should help Aboriginal people. This is alarming, alarming to the redneck base. He thinks, what? And then he says, but this particular version of helping them isn't going to work. I mean, it's just, there is, that, that is like, he is trying to straddle two diametrically opposed value sets. Just, sorry, just to finish up on one thing, I want to give you a bit of hope about this thing, right? I did a big poll, like lots of people. The start, and no one knows much about The Voice. I'm talking back in January, February. They still don't know much now, by the way. Um, start off with um, a bunch of questions that I'm using to get a, a feel for your attitude to First Nations people. Do you generally feel friendly towards First Nations people or a little bit hostile, right? So just keep that in your head for a second. Next thing I then ask is, what's your view on the voice? And, of course, there's some don't knows, but people were, I, I think it's, I think that I wouldn't be far off the published stuff. I would say about 55-35 in favour and a batch undecided, something to that order. I then take people, like I say, people who don't know much about the issue, take them through every conceivable argument, the best possible arguments we could think of for both sides. That's good research, Right which I want to find out what works for us. I need to know what works for them as well. So people are now considerably better informed at the end of the survey. And I ask the question again, now what's your position? Out of a very large sample size with a margin of error of less than 2%, my variance in position has changed by less than 2%. Right, so they hear all the arguments and they don't change their view. What are the things that are that, that in, we use as a statistical technique called regression, but essentially what it means is what are the things that seem to correlate to or relate to someone's view? Oh, go back to those opening questions. Uh, do you feel friendly towards uh, First Nations people or not? That is like a 93% predict. I don't need to ask you how you're going to vote on the voice. I ask you your attitude to First Nations people. And then... Uh, based on that, I've got a 93% chance of predicting your view on the, on the yes or no. So essentially, Australia now has, today, very different from even a decade ago, certainly different from three decades ago, Australians have a generally very positive attitude to First Nations people. Uh, I think they're going to get bombarded with all kinds of information about the voice, which is not going to change their view, and they're going to vote yes as a vote of confidence in First Nations people. That's what I'm expecting to happen later this year. And with that opening salvo from John, from John Armitage, uh... <laughs> And uh, Andrew Carson, is there anything you want to unpack from uh, some of the remarks that John just made there? And we can dive into that. Well, there were some nuggets of gold there. Um, I was very pessimistic about how the voice debate was going to unfold. And my viewpoint has changed on that. And the reason it has changed is for a lot of the reasons John has said. Now, he hasn't persuaded me in that second What did persuade me is talking to non-media, non-political, non-academic friends, and, yes, I still have some of those, um, (laughs) who uh, when I ask them, what's your view on The Voice, they say what John has just articulated, and that is that it's about fair go and that um, Aboriginal people have been left out for too long. And these are people with 
not particularly strong political perspectives um, that might straddle both sides of the divide, but people that are good friends of mine and that um, happen to be pretty accurate with most election outcomes. So that got me thinking about the values proposition and I do think underpinning Australian ethos is this idea of the fair go and treating people reasonably. And I think if the message coalesces around that, then the referendum's going to get up. Now, one of the things that I've been observing, and I did say there's been a lot more no coverage so far, but that's only because the no's are putting it out there. I think the yeses will start really putting it out there too soon. But what's interesting is the ad spend on Facebook, which um, there's not as much as you would think at the minute, but where it's being targeted is to Western Australia and Queensland, and they're probably the two states that um, might have a greater proportion of no views than yes. Um, And that's where the no campaign at the moment is targeting their ad spend. So that's something that's going to be interesting to watch. The other thing is um, we've been tracking any voice-related posts on on, um, Facebook since January. And there's not that much traffic going around. You know, you're looking at about 100 posts a day. um, And it's bouncing up and down. So I imagine that traffic's really going to start to build. The second greatest media um, in terms of volume poster is Sky News, which is running this basically de facto no campaign on behalf of um, those who have that viewpoint. The top is Close the Gap, which is a a yes campaign. Um, So that's something I'll be doing over the next five, six months is really tracking um, how these messages go out, who the key players are, and most importantly, how Australians are receiving those messages. I'm wondering if the the fact that we don't know the date has impacted the media spend or the campaign spend by both campaigns. I'm sure it has, Stephen. Uh, I mean, you, you'd want to hold back, wouldn't you, mm. until you get to the pointy end when you get close to when people are going to cast their vote. The other thing to consider as well is whilst it, it, it is an election, it's a referendum and the, 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 the ways upon which you win the map to win is different compared to a traditional election. Um, the It's essentially uh, six big seats and a national vote as well. Uh, and I think historically that's why it's been difficult to get referendums up unless there's been bipartisan support historically. In this case, we don't have that. Historically, that tells us that it's going to be a bigger mountain to climb. I, look, I don't, know, I don't know my constitutional history well enough to know when has there been a, a referendum that has got up in which there hasn't been bipartisan support. Um, but if it was to get up without bipartisan support, this is a real kick in the pills for the conservative side of politics because it's yeah, a but, big mountain of climb, right, and it still gets up. I do think that this isn't necessarily, as much as the political parties would love it to go down partisan lines, I'm not sure it will. And the reason for that is similar to the same-sex marriage plebiscite. It's that in political science we call these moral arguments um, and that moral arguments are usually really easy to understand. You're either for something or against something and you don't need a whole heap of political knowledge or take your cues from the political elites that you respect to be able to direct you into how you think about that. And the same-sex marriage debate, you know, that cut across politics. You had factions of the Labor Party that were against it, factions that were for, and the same within the Liberal Party. And I think you're going to see some of that division um, and cross-pressuring also going on with the voice debate. So it's not going to be a nice, even partisan debate. 
And at the end of the day, I think it's very easy for Australians just to think, well, do I think it's a reasonable proposition or not? They don't need a lot of information to be able to answer that. Um, it goes to their values. And that's why um, I don't know whether that partisan support part that's so important in referendums in the past is going to be as meaningful with this one. It's an interesting point you just made there, uh, Andrew, and I want to throw to you, John, uh, because I think you're, what you're saying here is you're making an argument that the Yes campaign is, a, is going to be a values-based message campaign. What I can see from the No campaign at the moment really feels more like a process type campaign like it's the process that we've got an issue with and therefore you should vote no um, whereas the yes campaign is saying no no we're appealing to the you know the better moral angels of our community to say yes to this um, is that how you're seeing it play out and on that basis are we more likely to see a victory for those who are making a moral or a values-based argument oh well Stephen, i hope they run a process argument i mean i i uh, you know like <laughs> Process arguments are just, I actually get arguments from, you know, clients that want me to test or whatever, and you've got to measure your clients and whether they need to learn this lesson face-to-face or, you know, in, the, in real time or whether they'll accept my judgment. Right? But generally speaking, if it's a process argument, I just cross it out. If I can chuck it out before I bother to test, I love to do it. I think the first time I wrote on this, I wrote something to a client, look, Australians have got nothing against a fair and equitable process, but they don't really care. You know, give them a proposition, you know, that, that has got a, 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 a moral sort of um, impetus to it. In fact, I would even take this a step further, which sounds like madness. I get people in focus groups a lot of the time going, mm, yeah, gee, I'm not sure about that. I'd like a bit more information, right? I get, And my clients go, oh, here's the information. I go, no, no, misunderstood. When people ask for more information, you need a stronger values proposition. Because I have given people more information and ask for more. And I give them more and they ask for more. And I give them more and they ask for more. At the end of it, they're just even more confused. So, you know, Dutton's whole strategy was about let's get people asking for more and more information so they're just left confused. Um, and I, that's a legitimate strategy when you haven't got a good moral proposition. Look, I, I, it, every day, every day, a strong, clear, singular, values-based moral proposition beats a process. John, can I test that with... Um some of the arguments we saw run out very early that I think Tony Abbott was testing, which I do think has a little bit of traction, and that's this simple idea, if you don't know, say no, which was run out during the um, uh, referendum on the Republic. Um, And I wonder what you think about that in terms of, oh, it's all too confusing, so therefore I must default to the status quo, you know, what we call the status quo bias in political science. That's the... Sorry, no, yeah, that's definitely true and good. That, that is particularly useful when there is a potential negative consequence. Um, so in the uh, Republic referendum, for example, um, uh, that makes sense because who's the president going to be? You know, it's all just a bit weird. It's changing. I got, I'm very comforted by our very safe political system that seems to be serving me well. I whinge about it, but I feel safe. Um, this is a referendum that at its most dangerous will listen to Aboriginal people. You know, so I, I'm not saying it's not a good argument for the Iran. I think that that's of some value. But where that is a cracker is, oh, they're going to change the tax system. Oh, are they? Who's going to be the winners and losers again? Oh, it's a bit confusing. Geez, I might get screwed over here. You know, I'll, I'll jump off it. So I, I don't say it's a bad argument. I just don't think it's got a huge amount of traction in this particular case. If I can then bring in something on that that I reflected on, the Scottish independent referendum uh, back in 
2014. Uh, I think part of the success that the no the better together campaign had was around it, it was framed as an outsider it looked like a process issue it was questions about what's going to happen with Scotland and the European Union what's going to happen with Scotland and the currency these are processy type issues but it kind of got to the heart of I think the value proposition was what's going to happen to the Scottish economy because right now things aren't great as it is anyway and I don't want it to get worse. My kids don't have access to good quality jobs. They've all got to go down to London to get work, that kind of stuff, right? So it was about, in the end it was about what's, what's going to happen to our way of life in Scotland. What's the chances of the no vote taking that process issue that you're framing right now but then somehow linking it to a value frame? That's the bit I... Oh, they're doing that right now. This is what Dutton's doing. And, I, and, and so what you, ha- you can do is you're going to have a process question, which is cover for your values proposition. And this is what Dutton requires now. So I said earlier that really underpinning this high yes vote, and I, I think we'll get a majority in every state and territory. If we miss the first one, we'd miss by a small amount. I doubt we'll miss with Queensland, then WA. How the heck they get rather uh, start, I don't know. That's what I think we'll get up. But, um, but so what Dutton's got to do is... He uses this process thing where he says, oh, but this won't deliver anything much good for First Nations people. Um, And that's partly why I wanted to say our single-minded proposition is that we'll make better policies and get better outcomes when we listen to the people that we're making about. So we're sort of countering that point. But he very interesting, well, not interestingly, and I I try not to hate our political opponents. I don't think that's that's useful, but I do hate him a bit for this. What, what What he deliberately picks, and it is the right political strategy, I'll give him credit for that, but I think it's a bit evil is when Dutton says it won't deliver meaningful outcomes, does he mention lower educational attainment? No, I don't think he does. Does he mention uh, lower, um, more t- uh, younger mortality? No, I don't think he does. Does he mention sort of poorer health outcomes? No, I don't think he does. Does he mention things like um, uh, racial profiling done by police? Um, no, I don't think he does. Uh, what he mentions is any category of, of Aboriginal disadvantage where you can blame Aboriginal people. So he talks about problems like youth violence, right? And, and he talks about problems like family violence and he talks about problems like substance abuse because each of them, we can say, here is a bad black actor. Here is the bad black man or boy that is perpetrating this bad thing. And then he can start to denigrate brand First Nations because as I've said, the underlying positive is positivity towards blackfellas. If we can bring that down a bit, then he can get that vote down a little bit because the only category of people that you would not believe in self-determination for in making free choices for is someone who's not able to, uh, you know, a teenager on drugs, uh, a, a person who's about to be suicidal. We would appropriately not give them the right to make their own choices because we need to, white people need to intervene to protect them. So Dutton says, I want to do something practical. What's the example he gives? Send in the federal police and the army to crack down on blackfellas. So he is trying to trash brand blackfella. Mm. The reason I think he won't succeed in this, and he's, he's using it as a process guide to try and link back to your question, the reason he won't succeed is we've been trashing brand blackfella for all of my life, and despite that now, eventually Australians have come to the conclusion that we actually feel very positive towards First Nations but culture much more so than we ever have before and so inserting these old arguments is probably not going to persuade anyone new 
Although if you look at some of the ads that are going out with Fair Australia, which is one of the no campaigns that Jacinta Price is heading up, um, the senator, um, Indigenous senator, they're using, it reminds me of parallels actually with the mining sector, with the mining tax. Remember when they amassed $100 million to go against what should have been a very common sense proposal, and that is that the profits of mining go back to Australians rather than to these big corporates. But alas, that debate was lost and Kevin Rudd lost his prior ministership out of it. And I see parallels there because with the mining tax debate, they used women in their ads and they used women who were empowered, that were um, able to to move out of the cities, to have top jobs as engineers and talked about um, the the freedoms that they have in this beautiful country um, in these big well-paid jobs. And here in these ads, we're seeing um, often two black women coming together with the caption, we are one together, not two divided. Um, And so it's using, you know, some of the aesthetics that we saw with the mining sector Um, anti-mining tax ads that could potentially be powerful, although there is one ad with Tony Abbott um, leaning forward with a very lurch-like expression that says, I think it's wrong in principle to divide Australians by race. So I do worry a bit about the values that they're putting forward there, the idea that um, if we do this listening exercise of um, adding a voice to Parliament that we're dividing the nation. Yeah, I think that's their best argument in some ways. Australians genuinely and quite desperately, I think, I'm not talking about black fellas here, I think a little bit more cynical, understandably, but the rest of the country is genuinely enthusiastic about a, a sort of rapprochement, I suppose, a sort of coming together, a, a, an acceptance that can we have a reconciliation, can we move past the bad old days? And so I think that the right would do well, or the no campaign would do well to try and make this into a de- a division of black and white and the yes campaign wants it to be a coming together so i think a happy positive mood uh, would be good and the second thing i'd probably like to see is black and white people really enjoying each other's company so if i'm not listening to the sound or i'm not really tuning in i associate yes with black and white embracing and being together and i think for the no campaign to try and create a sense that somehow this will separate us and divide us is the exact opposite of what Australians want out of any sort of reform in this space. So I I think that that is a good, you know, moral proposition for them to be uh, trying to get into. A little bit of a problem they've got is that, of course, the hardcore base that is no, the sort of redneck base, is not not an insignificant part of the conservative voter bloc. is pretty happy with the animosity and sort of want to keep it. So, uh, you know, I suppose they probably could still pitch to them by saying, you know, uh, this leads to even more animosity. Um, so I, I think that's probably the more sensible space for them to go down. I don't think it'll work for them in the end on the basis of the numbers, but that's the good argument for them. Yes, I think you're right. One thing I have noticed from the no camp uh, and look, this is anecdotal. I don't consume a lot of media, to be fair, which is ironic given we're talking about this on a podcast. But what I have seen coming from the no camp in terms of doorstops or press conferences or stand-ups brought seems to be mostly led by um, Aboriginal leaders within the community that are saying no to this. Less Dutton, less liberal MPs. 
on the yes side, I've broadly seen Labor politicians, Labor non-Aboriginal politicians getting up and doing it, doing the sort of the, this is what we're doing, the, like Mark Dreyfus. Um, look, I love Mark Dreyfus, great AG, not a campaigner, doesn't need to be getting up in front of a press conference and talking about this campaign. At some point, the, la- the white Labor politicians need to stop talking and we need to hand it over to um, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership to run the campaign or to be the spokespeople for the campaign. There are how many Indigenous members of parliament now at a national level and the majority of them are on the Labor side? Yeah, heaps. You know? Double numbers. Yeah. Yeah. They sh- if there's anyone from the caucus going to be talking from now on, it has to be the, it, I just it has to be them. Um, and if it's not someone from the caucus and we want to get – because every time I hear from um, Aboriginal leaders on the yes side – what they're saying makes absolutely perfect sense and it, you know, I'm already on board, right, but if I was wavering, I'd be listening to that to the points that John was making earlier about a values proposition. Uh, I, can, I, th- I can get on board with that, you know, because, to you know, they're basically saying all we're asking for is for us to have a bit more say in how we can help improve our lives. And when they crystallise it in that simple message, I go, yep, got it, like this is a no-brainer for me, I'm voting yes, right? Um, but too often I'm seeing, you know, white Labor politicians talk about it and get lost in the weeds and, you know, just, I just like, oh, no, stop, just stop. And I know it's, like, I know it's early, like it's really early and I think they will correct that. But that for me is a warning sign for the campaign, for the Yes campaign, that I think we're just all, you know, really super excited non-Aboriginal Australians that want to right some wrongs of the past. And so we really want to get, in, want to get involved in the campaign and we want to leave from the front, but I just think we have to sort of step aside and go, no, 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 we need to enable others. I mean, in the practice of community organising is about enabling others to achieve shared purpose. And that means we need to enable black leadership to run this campaign and not us. 100% agree, Stephen. What's your job and my job uh, in advancing the feminist movement in Australia? Shut up and listen to women. That's our job, right? Like that's actually it's an important job. Um, and I, I just think um, it, uh, black faces have got to be the front and centre of this campaign. And I'm sure they will. Um, there's a lot of fabulous advocates, uh, a lot of them, uh, a lot of them in the ALP and even in the parliament, but a lot of fabulous uh, black leadership out there. And, you and know, in the Liberal Party too. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Oh, and most recently of them part still, of the yes. Liberal Party. Mm. Yeah, and I, th- I hope we will, Stephen. I hope we'll see that. And it's important that we see that. Well, we're, we're at our hour, so I'm going to take final reflections. And I knew that we weren't going to get through everything we wanted to talk about today. Um, so we're probably going to have to get you back on the show uh, as the uh, campaign unfolds. Uh, to you, first of all, uh, Andrew, final reflections before we wrap up. Uh, well, it was a pretty thought-provoking conversation. Um, I, I guess it's watch this space. Let's see how these campaigns um, reduce their arguments and become more pointed. Um, I hope that, that we start to see a real uptick in the Yes campaign and uh, look forward to talking about it further down the track. Wonderful. And John Armitage? Yeah, on the two things uh, that we talked about, on that sort of, you know, the sort of far right's influence on the Liberal Party, I think the Liberal Party needs to um, separate itself from the National Party. I think the National Party needs to work, merge with One Nation. I think they need a, a, a redneck brand, which National Party and One Nation can do. And I think they need another middle class white people in, in a city brand, and that Liberal Party used to be. It's Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm, if Malcolm Turnbull invented the Progressive Party tomorrow and joined with, uh, I forget the bloke's name, who funded the Teals, they would just 
just monster. Simon Holmes, of course. Yeah, Simon Holmes. If they, if they, if they had a handshake and got a bit pissed and agreed to put 10 million bucks each on the table, I reckon they'd create a new party and wipe the inner city Liberal Party out. Um, uh, so I, I think they just, they've got to decide. Like, Dutton's got to pick a team. And I know his parliamentary team is the crazies, but he's got to ditch that brand. And- uh, hope he doesn't, in a way, but they've got to. And on the voice, yeah, I'm upbeat, I'm optimistic, I expect us to win. I think we've just got to have a happy positive campaign, not get caught in the voids, and, uh, and we're going to do real well. Your reflection, Stephen? I don't, I, you, every time you come on the show, Andrew, you ask me a question and I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> Sorry. Doing it's the journalist in me. I can't oh, no, help it. No, 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 no. My reflections. Um, I'm hopeful for the, for the voice campaign, uh, but I'm also, there's a part of me that has seen referendums not just here in Australia because we don't have a lot of them, but also around the world. New Zealand, the cannabis referendum they had a couple of years ago, you know, Indy Ref in Scotland, Brexit, where we go into the campaign well in front and then we watch our lead get whittled away for a whole bunch of different reasons that aren't similar but are similarities across those referendums. And I just want to make sure that we guard against that uh, and then we get the result by not being complacent, you know, in, a, in the campaign. That's my, that's, there you go, there's my reflection. Um, John Armitage, wonderful to have you on the show. Going to have you back again in the future. Don't know why it took us so long to get you on the podcast. Always appreciate your insights. Um, and so great to see you. So thanks for coming on today's show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Andrew Carson, as always, love to have you on the show. And once again, we'll get you back on the show uh, in the near future to talk more about some of the work that you're doing. Are you writing another book? You must be writing another book coming out soon. Oh, I've just finished one. Actually, it came out in December on the ethics of undercover reporting. So I'll have a little bit of a break and then maybe get into something else. Wonderful. You just shoot out books on, in your sleep. It's, you're, you're a phenom. Uh, <laughs> wonderful to see you both. Uh, best of luck with all your endeavours and uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.